0: Hey everyone, I'm Patrick McNell and I'm the student director here at the River Church. Thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way to do that is to text River Connect one word, to 97000 or you can visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321 or you can visit our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you for that response. As always, your, your response is always so hearty at the 11 o'clock. I think the people at the 9 o'clock gathering are just asleep or something. Because like, it's literally like you're doing announcements, or like you say hi, and they just sit there and they just look at you. So. Anyways, love having you, you guys respond. I appreciate that. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Keaton. I'm the Director of Students and Young Adults here. I have the privilege of opening God's Word uh, with you this morning as we continue and really con- for the year, we're going to be concluding the Sermon on the Mount series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks and, and months here. And I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity. I feel like, uh, not, not I feel like, I know that the Lord has something for us today that He's going to... Share and um, excited for it. So, I hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving. I don't know whether you're with family or friends or, or however you spent it. I've been hearing about. Weird, not weird, I shouldn't say weird, different traditions you guys have. I know some of you just do the normal thing. Some of you go like Josh and Jen to Bavarian Inn for Thanksgiving. Heard of a family that did that. They kind of took a page out of Josh and Jen's book and said, that was horrible. We're never doing that again. So <laughs> what works for Josh and Jen doesn't work for everybody, but it's, it's great. Haley and I, we spent the last couple of uh, days down in Pittsburgh with her family, her Sister and brother-in-law just bought a house there, and so it was great to be together uh, all, all with them. We had a great time together there, and uh, I don't know about you, but there was a football game on yesterday that I very much enjoyed as well, uh, seeing Michigan beat Ohio State. I have, to, I have to confess, it was a little extra sweet for me. Haley's whole family is from Ohio. They're all Ohio State fans. I, I didn't say a word till the game was over. I didn't say a whole lot when it was over, but... It was, pretty, it was pretty sweet sitting with them. Haley, I've swayed her. She's now a, a Michigan fan uh, with marrying me, and she works at U of M now as well. And so, uh, yes, they're clapping for you, Haley. There you go. You've come to the, the light. You've left the dark side. Just kidding. Just kidding. But this year, uh, I'm not wearing my jersey on stage. I preached the same weekend last year, and I wore my Michigan jersey, but I, I refrained this year. Well, yesterday, like I said, when we spent the game uh, with all the Ohio State fans, uh, I think this is to take it a little more seriously than it was, but it was kind of like spending the game in enemy territory, right? Spent the whole game with them, and then after the game was done, Haley and I drove all the way back from Pittsburgh through the state of Ohio. I was a little bit afraid for my life, not really my life, but spent, spent the day, you know, there with, with them in enemy territory, and uh, I'm not enemies with Haley's family. I love them. They love me. We get along great, uh, and thankfully, her family doesn't actually care too much, you know, except her brother. Her brother really cared about the game, but the rest of her family, not too bad. But this morning, we're going to be talking about um, enemies, and uh, we're going to talk about the, the call that Christ has given his followers to love our enemies, and how we're supposed to do that as we conclude this series. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, God, that that your son Jesus Christ gave and all that we can take away from it. God, I thank you for your love that you have shown to us, even when we didn't deserve it. God, I just ask today that as we open your word, that it would come alive in our hearts, God, that your spirit would be speaking to each person that hears these words, God. Would they be more than just words, but would, they, would you work in the hearts and the minds of them, Lord? Would your spirit do that? Would you show us who you're calling us to love, and would you give us the grace and the ability to do that for your name's sake? God, I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are going to be wrapping up our series in the Sermon on the Mount for this year. We're going to pick it up next year in chapter 6. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 43 here. Jesus has been giving this Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of people say it's the greatest sermon ever preached. And scholars don't quite agree as to whether Jesus literally preached this all at one time or if it's a collection of some of his most common uh, teachings or or whatnot. But regardless, there's these common ideas throughout. And so we have taken the time last fall and this fall to look at it as a whole. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been going through the section where Jesus begins everyone saying, you have heard that it was said, and then he clarifies and he corrects it. And so let's pick it up. Uh, verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. We'll read to through verse 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus gives us some, a high calling here. He's talking about enemies. And whether you feel like this is specifically applicable to you or not, I believe that there's something for, for every person here that every person as something that God is going to show you today. You might say, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I love people a lot. I'm, I'm a lover. I'm not a hater. I don't have any enemies, right? Well, we're going to see this morning, the kind of love that we are called to have and how, how we're supposed to show it. We're called, we're commanded actually by Jesus to show it even to the people that we don't want to love. And so Jesus begins this teaching The same way he began the last five sections, you have heard that it was said. He's taking the Old Testament, the law that the Jewish people had, and he's correcting it. You know, he tells us earlier in this chapter in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus isn't coming to throw away the Old Testament He's not trying to detach from it or say, forget all that stuff. Rather, he's coming, and he and him, his life on this earth, he fulfilled it perfectly. But then he also here wanted to clarify, because the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers, they decided to add on to his laws a little bit. And so Jesus came to correct that, to correct their thinking. And so he says, you've heard it said. Scribes and the Pharisees had taught this. The people had heard this in the synagogues. You shall love your neighbor and hate. Your enemy, to the people that were hearing it, this was normal. They'd be nodding their heads in agreement, not thinking a whole lot is off. It comes from Leviticus chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. The Lord says, "You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. We we agree there. Love your neighbor. Nothing too crazy there. But then you see, there's a difference here in what Jesus says they've heard in what was actually given. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But that's not what the law says. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Pharisees, they got rid of the as yourself and they decided, well, let's just, let's take some, some uh, poetic uh, license here. And let's just, let's summarize for, for God here. Love your neighbors. Well, if we're supposed to love our neighbors and the opposite, well, let's just hate our enemies too. And so the people Had heard this, they got some of these ideas. I, I believe some of the teachers had some good intentions. They thought they saw this in scripture passages like Psalm 139. David is writing here. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them. My enemies. We say, well, it doesn't sound too far off. That's not not too bad. But there's a key distinction here that the teachers were missing. As David was writing this, this was not him just willy-nilly choosing to hate people that offended him. The reason he says he hates these, he loathes them, is because of what they are doing against God. He says they speak against you, O God. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? You see the difference here? You see, Jesus was clarifying that the heart of God, does not, we're not called to hate our enemies. But David here is speaking of people who have positioned themselves as enemies of God. This is a judge on their character. This isn't a personal attack. Like, he's just going to hate people. But Pharisees took this as license. Well, no, let's just hate people that are different than us. They do something against us, write them off. They're done for here. Anyone that looked different than them, anyone that offended them, they were like, no, we, we can hate them. That's what this verse means, but it, but it doesn't. And I think we're quick to point our fingers at the Pharisees and to say, come on, guys, how could you do that? But yet we're quicker to do that than I believe we're willing to admit. We don't like people that believe differently than us, or we look down on people that look different than us. I believe part of it's natural. We're drawn to people with similar interests. I experienced this firsthand last night as Haley and I were driving home from Ohio. We stopped at a rest, from Pittsburgh, pardon we were driving through Ohio, stopped at a rest stop in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, and uh, get out of the car on my Michigan jersey. Saw two Michigan fans. We're high fiving. You know, we're we're fist bumping each other. We're saying "Go Blue" together. Whatever, right? But anybody who was there wasn't didn't have any Michigan gear on. Anyone who was surely an Ohio State fan there, right? I had nothing to do with them. Was not drawn to them. Didn't greet them. Didn't even acknowledge them. So I think what the Pharisees are doing here is is natural. We're, we we sometimes do similar things. We want to write off people that are different. Ones. So we're we're drawn to people that are similar. Than us. So let's be not so quick to judge here, though, what the Pharisees had said was wrong here. So Jesus' rebuttal here, verse 44 But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus takes what the people knew, what the teachers had been teaching, completely flips it on his head. They said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus says, no, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus dispels right off the bat here the idea of hating enemies. Because this is not the heart of God or the way his children are to live. What Jesus does here is even more than that, though. In the previous section, as as Josh taught last week, Jesus told the people not to retaliate. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 38. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist. So This is a command here to stop, hold yourself. It's a negative element here. What Jesus calls his followers to do is to take it a step further. Not just not resist, but here, he says, love your enemies. It's not just don't slap back, don't punch back, don't don't offend back with your words. Rather, it's love your enemy. Love those who look down on you, those who look different than you, those who... Have spoken against you, those who have hurt you. You see, the the people here they wanted to love as few people as possible. Love is not easy. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, in the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a lawyer who wants to test Jesus. So Luke 10, 29 says, But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Because he knows, love your neighbor. He knows that command. So he says, Jesus, who do I really have to love? And I think we often ask the same question. We so often want to do the minimum that God requires of us. It's easy to love those that love us, but those that don't love us, those that hate us, that speak against us, don't want to love them. And the neighbor, the person, the lawyer, or the good Samaritan was supposed to love or the neighbor of the lawyer, pardon me, was even the man that in the story, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was supposed to hate. The person who looked different than him, the person from a different culture, from a different nationality, their people were supposed to hate each other, they were supposed to be enemies. But Jesus says, who is the neighbor? And he says, the Good Samaritan, the man that helped him. So who is our Neighbor, who are we called to love if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Even the last person you would want to love. Even the last person that it's easy to love. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't say just love. I believe he gives us an application here. And he continues, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How do we love our enemy? Well, I think one of the steps is by praying for them. Pray for those who persecute you. If we build on again what Jesus said previously here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's just not, it's not just not retaliating, but rather it's stepping towards, stepping in, choosing to love and pray for those who have hurt us. In order to do that, We must humble ourselves. See, the prideful person only thinks of themselves. When they're offended, it's all about me, me, me. And that doesn't lead to prayer for sure. But the humble person who's willing to see the person's brokenness that hurt you is then, as they humble themselves, able to bring them before the Lord in prayer. In Jesus, he doesn't call us to do something he's not willing to do himself. In Luke 23, as Jesus himself is on the cross, as he's bearing the weight, the punishment, the penalty for our sin, what did he say in Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he is being killed, who is he praying for? Those that are killing him. Those that have accused him, those that called for his death and his arrest, his murderers. He says, Father, forgive them. He prayed for them. He's our greatest example here. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators, points this out. He says, when you pray for someone while they're persecuting, persecuting you, you are assaulting the throne of God on their behalf. God, help this person. Instead of assaulting in return, returning violence for violence, rather we're called to assault to bring them before the throne of God in prayer. But why? This isn't easy. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why not just hate them? Well, Jesus gives us the first reason here in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This isn't a condition here. It's not, Jesus isn't saying, if you don't do this every single time, you're not my child. No, no, the the Jewish here, this was common language. Essentially means so that you may be like your father. We can insert that word in there. So why would we love our enemies? Why would we pray for those who persecute us? Because this is how God, our Father, loves. The example of this that Jesus gives? Because he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, the most sinful person in the world, and we could make an argument, the least sinful person in the world, they both still see the sun, they receive rain, God doesn't hold that back from them. It's like, can you imagine if you were deep in sin one day, and the next day God punishes you by just the sun not coming up, or you'd never get rain again? We're so used to it. We just take it for granted. But yet, the key here is that it's His Son, God's Son. God is in control of it. And He loves even those who don't deserve it. You you might be sitting here and you say, Well, I've loved a lot more than I've hated. I I deserve God's Son, I, I deserve the rain. Every single person, every one of us at once was an enemy of God because of our sin. You might be sitting in here, and if you've never confessed Christ as your Lord in turn of your sin, you're still in opposition with the Lord. You are opposing Him. But every one of us was that, but by the grace of God. But on those days... Even when we were still deep in our sin, enslaved us and the sun still rose, we felt its warmth and the rain still watered the plants and the grass on us. To take it even a step further, though we were once enemies of God, God didn't save us because of the good works we've done or because of the love we have or because he saw something good in us. He opened our eyes to his truth because of his self-governing will and his love. Not because of what he saw in us, but in himself. He chose to love us in his perfect will. So I think the first thing we see here is the selfless love. And it's that selfless love is demonstrated by loving enemies, God loved us. He showed us this selfless love, even when we were His enemies. And we are called to do the same here. But this isn't natural. It's not easy. It's not something that we can just well up in ourselves. Oh, I'm going to love my enemies. When have you ever seen someone who isn't a follower of Jesus set their mind in their hearts and to choose to love their enemy? You haven't. It's very, very few and far between, maybe. But loving enemies is not natural. Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about this, he says, your natural ethics and morality can make a passive resister. But the Christian is a man who positively loves his enemy and goes out of his way to do Good to them that hate him and to pray for them that use him despitefully and malign him. You see, a person can well up in themselves to not resist, to not retaliate, but it generally stops there. Because it's only supernaturally that we then choose to step in and love back, though we have been hated and persecuted. But how is this possible? It's based on the selfless love. This is a love that's not based upon what someone does or has, but it's based upon our view of them. This is God's love for us. It's not based upon what we've done or something in us, but it's based upon his view of us, his love for us ultimately. You know, and when we... Are assaulted, when we are hurt, when people make themselves our enemies, we must change our view of them. We must see them properly. Number one, are they made in the image of God, which gives them intrinsic value? Are they doing this because they don't know Christ, so ultimately they're a sinner in need of a Savior? Are they bound in sin, following their, the way of their Master, the Evil One? Well, yes, if they don't know Christ. The answer is yes. Martin Lloyd-Jones continues here. We should, he says, Then we should go on thinking until we see them in such a way that we become sorry for them, until we see them as going to their terrible doom and at last become so sorry for them that we have no time to be sorry for ourselves, until we are so sorry for them indeed that we begin to pray for them. What must our mindset be when we're hurt, assaulted, and mocked, and, and spoken poorly about? It's become sorry for them that we have no time to be sorry for ourselves until it indeed leads us, leads us to begin to pray for them. Their salvation must be at the forefront of our mind as it was On Christ's. This is love. Selfless love. Or we could define it agape love. This love is not a romantic love. It's not a buddy love. It's not even an emotional love for those who have hurt us. I think we could take it so far as we're not even called to necessarily like or hang out with our enemies. But yet we're called to love them. Kent Hughes describes this selfless love as a deliberate, intelligent, determined love—an invincible goodwill towards them, having their best, ultimately their salvation, at the forefront of our mind. See what is this invincible goodwill? Look like This past uh, weekend on Thanksgiving morning, as Haley and I were in Pittsburgh, I went and played football with a couple of guys, and I assumed without the pads enough, we're going to be playing two-hand touch. And so I get there, and I'm like, what what are we doing? They're like, oh, we play gentleman's tackle. And I'm like, what is that tackle? Like, I got to get home to Thanksgiving after this. Like, I don't want any broken bones. Like, no, 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 no. What you do in a gentleman's tackle, I, I found out, is though you're on opposite teams. See, the ball carrier, when you go to hit them, to get them on the ground, if they say they're down or if they kind of stop drop, if they drop themselves, they're down. So you don't don't pile drive them into the ground. At the same time, though you're their enemy for the game, you're not trying to hurt them. You're not trying to blow them up with a big shoulder, right, like you would do in in real football. You're just trying to get them to the ground gently. There were a couple, there were two girls that played on the team and, and with them, right, it was it was a gentleman's tackle. It was it was a light tackle because they didn't want to get hurt either, right? And so as I'm carrying, carrying the ball, you know, up, uh, returning one of the kicks, they come up to me and I'm, I'm brought down just gently to the ground, right? And I, I think as silly as that illustration is, it's, it's a picture of this goodwill towards someone else, this love for them. Though we are opposites, though we're opposed here, we weren't trying to hurt each other. We weren't trying to blow each other up. We were trying to get each other to the ground, but ultimately help them back up. We had their goodwill. We weren't trying to break bones. We weren't trying to show off each other. But, but when pride gets in there, if one of us had just decided, I'm going to show this dude, right? You blow him up. That's a rib. That's whatever it might be. But as we kept each other's goodwill in mind, there were no injuries. We all got home safely. I'm, I'm a little sore from it still, but that comes with the territory. I think this is this goodwill we have. Towards even those who hate us, not liking them, not an emotional goodwill, but having their best, their salvation at the forefront of our mind. And so practically, how does someone do this? C.S. Lewis, in his book, "Mere Christianity," he put it this way. He says, "The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Our draw, our natural instinct, is that our actions follow our feelings we feel offended well, i'm going to offend you back i'm going to say something back to you you feel angry oh i'm going to do something about it practically we feel hungry well we get something to eat you know and, and sometimes feelings are are good my counselor once told me as i was i was working through a situation in my life that for about 2 years i was dealing with uh, just anxiety and, and anger over a situation. I just suppress, suppress, suppress that emotion. One of the things my, my counselor told me, he said, he said, feelings are a warning sign that something is off. And that's true. He's right. But feelings are exactly that, a warning sign. Our feelings cannot be our master. So when we feel offended, we feel hurt. It is a warning sign that there's sin, that something is wrong, but yet the call is still to love and pray for that person. Jesus gives us a reason for this. Verse 45. It says, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes his sun rise. Sorry, verse 46. Pardon me here. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So we're called to love and pray for our enemies. Because the selfless love is demonstrated by loving our enemies but the second thing here is that selfless love, it stands out. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Almost everybody loves those who love you. It's easy to do. Those who have your interests at heart, those who provide for you, are kind to you, it's easy to love them back. You know, i might be sitting here again saying, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of love. I love a lot of people. See what Jesus is pointing out? Even the tax collectors, the crooked government employees who were known for taking more, stealing from people, even they love each other. They love the people that love them. Jesus continues in verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles... Do the same. What more are you doing than others? The Gentiles, she's saying even they. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. They're, quote, enemies, those who are not God's chosen people. The Gentiles, well, even they do that. They do that too. I think we can translate what Jesus is saying to the way we would talk today. Jesus says, when you love those who love you, he says, what do you want? You want a gold star or a cookie, Right? It's something Haley says to me sometimes when I tell her something I did that I should have done from the start, right? It's understood, well, duh. What do you want as a reward? The more here is the difference. See what Jesus says here? What more are you doing than others? The selfless love stands out because it's different. This Christian love that God has shown us and that ultimately we are called to show looks different. Martin Lloyd-Jones lays out four questions to this more love. Four questions we're to ask ourselves in regards to our love, whether it looks different than the world's or not. It says, do you pray for people who persecute you and use you? Despitefully. Do you ask God to have mercy and pity upon them and not to punish them? Do you ask God to save their souls and eyes before it's too late? Do you feel a great concern for their salvation? This is the more to a Christian's love. When we have this more, this selfless Love stands out. It's kind of love that Jesus requires looks different because it is different. It's not just the negative don't resist, but it's the positive attitude, the goodwill towards your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you've seen why Jesus calls us to do this. How do we really go about this? Day in and day out. Verse 48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the standard that God has set for his people who have confessed him as his Lord and turned of their sin. Perfection like your heavenly Father. Is this even possible? How can we be perfect? Can we? Well, the word here that is translated perfect stems from the Greek word here, word teleos. Other places it's translated as complete, mature. It's the same word here that Jesus used with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said to him, verse Matthew 19, 21, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. For the rich young ruler, he turned, he turned away sad because he knew he could not. He couldn't part from what he had. But to use this word here, telios, is perfect that we translate, communicates that every believer, no matter how long you've been following Christ, there is still more love, still more to this love that you're called to give. No one has arrived here. This word is also used in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature, this is the word here, mature, think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. This teleos is a life that's fully committed to the will and the way of God. The call is difficult, but it's doable with the power of God. You know, we can say that this selfless love is supernatural. An English theologian and commentator, Alfred Plummer, he put it this way. He says, To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human to return good for evil is divine. Selfless love has been shown to us. and selfless love is God's standard for his children. If you've confessed him as your Lord, you identify as a follower of him. This selfless love is what we're called to give in loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. It's a selfless love for the person who backs into your car in the parking lot and doesn't even leave a note. Everything in you is just like, I'm going to get that person, right? But yet, do they know Christ? Well, I would hope not if they were to do that. It's selfless love for the person who's mocking you at work. When you choose to be honest about something that requires you to work harder because you want to honor the Lord in it, and they mock you for it, and they tease you, or they make your life more difficult. It's the selfless love towards them, selfless love towards the person with the different political views than you, right? I bet politics didn't come up at all at Thanksgiving, right? Selfless love towards that person who believes, who lives differently, you're a student for the teacher, the professor, that makes fun of you for believing that there's a God out there, selfless love with their salvation at the forefront of our mind, for the person who's offended you, who has hurt you, who has gossiped about you and spoken ill of you, and it's for the person who we have nothing in common with, the person who doesn't look like us, who doesn't act like us that we want to look down upon, we're called to have love towards them. A reminder for us is, as Jesus tells us, God's sun continues to shine on them, and he still sends rain to where they are. And We must do the same. Your enemy, if God has brought a person to mind today, someone, the last person you want to love, I would challenge you this week, as C.S. Lewis says, to act first. I would challenge you. If there's a name that comes to your mind to pray for them by name. For the next two weeks, every day. What I've learned in my own life, I remember I had a friend in college that that told me as I thought he was crazy, or someone I really didn't want to love. Begin to pray for that person every single day by name. It's a really, really difficult. To hate someone and pray for them at the same time. It's really difficult to wish ill will on them and pray for them at the same time. What I experienced in my heart was that God began to give me this love for them as I brought them before Him. As we humble ourselves and bring them to the throne. You know, when you're tempted to speak poorly or gossip about that person that you know can't stand you, call is to stay silent, ultimately turn the other cheek, but also to love them and pray for them, to choose humility. We must act first, and then as we pray and bring them before the Lord, our feelings will then slowly follow as God changes our heart. And so as we wrap up chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount until next fall, we're going to pick it up. In chapter six. I want to take you back to verse 20, chapter five, verse 20, what Jesus said at the beginning. "For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." So he's preaching to the scribes, the Pharisees, they're making laws, they're adding to it. He says, "Unless your righteousness is greater than them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he concluded here with verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The righteousness that Jesus requires is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were adding on to the laws. They were adding all these rules. But yet their hearts were far From the Lord. Jesus took their righteousness. All these you have heard that it was said are things they said and they taught, and Jesus corrects it. He began here by saying, You have heard it said not to murder, but I say don't even insult your brother in anger. You've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say don't even lust after another person. You've heard it said to give a certificate of divorce when you get a divorce. But I say to you, do not divorce except in the case of sexual immorality. You've heard it said not to swear falsely. But I say don't even take an oath at all. Rather, speak the truth at all times so people know you're always speaking truthfully. You've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, turn the other cheek. And lastly, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. The six cases that Jesus gives us, they seem disheartening. It's a high, high call. How can someone do that? They seem almost Impossible to live out each of those perfectly. But what if that's the point? Jesus concludes here, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I believe that Jesus didn't say you must be complete or mature. I believe he says you must be perfect to drive home his point that only Christ is perfect. No one in of themselves can attain this standard. No one has lived this out perfectly. But yet the good news for us is that though we've sinned, every one of us at one time has been an enemy of God, He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled these perfectly. Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserve for our sin, in our shame. Our sin, that's an assault against God first and foremost. He was dead for three days, was raised to life. At the end of the three days, he appeared to thousands, he ascended, he went back up and sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, the Father. Jesus is the only one that has fulfilled these perfectly. But he offers his life and death and resurrection to us. If you've been listening and you say, I'm so far from these things. I, I can't do it. And you've never confessed Christ as your Lord and repented of your sin. The offer is there for you. Romans 10 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you've made that decision, well, the good news is that when God the Father looks at you, He doesn't see our sin, He doesn't see our failings, but He sees Jesus' perfect life in our place that He offers to us. So what if this is the point all along? None of us is perfect. Only Christ is. But yet we're called to imitate him and display the love that we have received. So the selfless love, it's supernatural. You can only live it out by receiving Christ and learning from Him, and spending time with Him. And the selfless love ultimately is God's standard for us, if you're His child. We are called to live it out. And as we do, He gets the glory. And ultimately, when we live His way, it works best. Let's be a church. Let's be people who are known for this selfless love having the goodwill of those who even hate us and malign us because the lord still sends his son in his reign on them let's pray